Peace We Build It is a podcast about the Alliance for Peacebuilding and its network of over 130 organizations working globally in 181 countries to reduce and prevent violent conflict and build sustainable peace. Host Tanya Domi will interview AFP's global partners, expert guests, and policy advocates on how they tackle the challenging work of conflict prevention and peace building in a world riddled by increasing violent conflict and more. Today's guests include Alexander Hinton, a distinguished professor of anthropology, director of the External Center for the Study of Genocide and Human Rights, and the UNESCO Chair on Genocide Prevention at Rutgers University. He is the author of over a dozen books, including the award-winning Why Did They Kill? Cambodia in the Shadow of Genocide, University of California Press, 2005. And most recently, It Can Happen Here, White Power and the Rising Threat of Genocide in the United States, NYU Press, 2021. Liz Hume is the executive director of the Alliance for Peacebuilding. She is a conflict expert and has more than 20 years of experience in senior leadership positions in bilateral, multilateral institutions and NGOs. She has extensive experience in policy and advocacy and overseeing sizable and complex peacebuilding programs in conflict affected and fragile states in Asia. Eastern Europe, and Africa. Since January 6, 2021, Americans have been grappling with the shocking rise of white supremacy and white nationalism that drove a mob to the U.S. Capitol with the aim to stop the electoral college vote count by the Congress that was intended to confirm Joe Biden had been elected president of the United States. Five people died as a consequence of the attack. Although the insurrectionists failed to stop the vote, the events of January 6th have instigated a broader conversation and questioning about who we are and how do we address the deep political polarity present in our society, as well as the gaping wounds of social disillusion with one another. What we are reckoning with as we review the American story is that, one conclusion, we are not exceptional. Indeed, these extreme elements have always been in our society from the very beginning of the country and even before. The events of January 6th have also launched the largest investigation in the history of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. And just this past week, Guy Wesley Reffitt became the first insurrectionist to be convicted on five counts. They include obstructing Congress's certification of the 2020 presidential election by leading a pro-Trump mob that breached the Capitol building. He faces a 20-year prison sentence. More than a year later, Mr. Reffitt is notable as the first American to be convicted for their violent actions on a day that certainly will go down in history. Welcome to the Peace We Build It podcast, Professor Alex Hinton. Thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thanks so much for inviting me to be on. 
And I want to welcome back Liz Hume, the Executive Director for the Alliance for Peace Building. She has been a really vital commentator in our podcast, and today will be no exception. Alex Hinton is a distinguished genocide scholar at Rutgers University and is also author of It Could Happen Here, published in 2020 by NYU Press. And what we're going to discuss today is the rise of white supremacy in America that has been characterized by some significant events in recent American history The most significant one was on January 6th, 2021, when the United States Capitol was seized with an insurrection by Americans who came to the Capitol to disrupt the counting of President Joe Biden's electoral victory. And also Charlottesville, which happened in 2017 when the Proud Boys, a right-wing group, that presented itself more or less like a fascist Nazi youth demonstration that came to violence and actually killed one of the participants. Both of our commentators today have history working on democracy and dealing with genocide in the case of Professor Hinton. And Liz Hume has worked all around the world and has brought lessons learned to a United States problem. So I would like to start with you, Professor Hinton, and ask, how did you come to decide to write this book, It Can Happen Here? Yeah, well, thanks. That's a a welcome question and an interesting one. Take a couple minutes to answer it, but I also just want to say what a pleasure it is to be here and also uh, being in such distinguished company. So my path to writing the book uh, really dates back to 2016. I'm a you know, scholar of mass violence and genocide. As an anthropologist, I had done my fieldwork uh, in Cambodia, where a genocide was committed by the Khmer Rouge from 1975 to 1979. Due to geopolitics after that time, uh, it wasn't until the 2000s that the possibility emerged for redress, in this case, a transitional justice mechanism. And so in 2003, a law was passed to establish a tribunal. It commenced in 2006. 2009 was the first trial uh, of someone who ran a torture and interrogation center. Uh, His name was Doik at the S21 Torture Center. And then the second trial began, which had the two most senior uh, Khmer Rouge leaders uh, still alive who went on trial. Well, actually, there were a couple more, but they died uh, during as the proceedings went on. Uh, but brother number two, uh, Nguyen Gia, was one of them. So in 2016, uh, I was called to testify on the charge uh, sort of generally, but in particular on genocide. Uh, and that encounter actually led to an exchange with Nguyen Gia who was one of the uh, planners of the genocide. Uh, so I've been deeply immersed in this. So in 2016 in the U.S. at the same time, we had rapidly changing situation moving out. Uh, you know, we're at the end of the Obama administration. Uh, Donald Trump had emerged from 2015 into 2016. I testified in March. By March, he had won Super Tuesday. And he was saying a number of things uh, that were extremely inflammatory. So literally on the day I began my testimony at the uh, Khmer Rouge Tribunal in Cambodia, other side of the world, 
then candidate Trump was giving a speech and he invoked a parable. It's actually based on an Aesop fable that he often has done on the campaign trail. Uh, People really like it about a snake. And he would always frame it by talking about immigration, about terrorists, and sort of the quick gist of it, and this is how actually my book begins, uh, is that there's an innocent woman who takes in a snake that's about to die. So the snake, again, is crossing uh, into the domestic, into the home. So you can think of a borderline, uh, especially in the way that he was framing it. She uh, nurtures the snake, nurses it back to to health. Uh, She comes home and then it bites and kills her. Uh, and he would tell this tale and people would scream, but already, you know, that sort of condensed things that he was saying in general, uh, that were demonizing, especially non-whites. Many people were gravitating to this message. It was also linked to grievance, uh, an issue that also continues into the present. And, you know, he talked about the the snake, the Khmer Rouge used to talk about the crocodile. Uh, so, you know, I had already been thinking a lot about this. People were already making the over, you know, it's overstretched, uh, but the analogy between Trump and Hitler. So the sort of connection to genocide was very much in my mind. And I knew, you know, by then that I would write something. Uh, and then really after Charlottesville, I decided to go ahead and, and write the book. The book was finished in the middle of 2020, but in fact, uh, in a certain sense, it keeps going because the things I was writing about very much are with us now and the uh, ever-present threat that we face. Of course, absolutely. That's very informative. Liz, in your work at AFP, you've put together a set of recommendations with regard to the rise of white nationalism in America, and you've provided these recommendations to the President Biden's administration about creating a comprehensive framework to address the causes of violent extremism and declining democracy and worsening social cohesion in the United States. What are some of the key elements of this framework, and why did you do this, given that you're a global organization Uh, with 180 countries represented, but you focused on America, which is very unusual. Tell me how this all came about. Yeah, I mean, highly unusual. In fact, even in the charter, AFP's charter, uh, we were not supposed to work in the United States. It was meant to be an international organization looking outside. In early 2015, I had just joined the Alliance for Peacebuilding. I'd come back from uh, working in Ethiopia for about four years, and I had come back and noticed a change in the United States, a pretty drastic change where people were openly hostile to each other about politics. And it's not that people didn't disagree with each other, but it was very personal. It was very visceral. And I found that a bit surprising. When I was at the U.S. government, at the U.S. Agency for International Development, in the early 2000s, we had developed our conflict assessment framework that we used all over the world in conflict-affected and fragile states. So I essentially took that conflict analysis and applied it to the United States, looking at grievances, real and perceived, resiliencies, both good and bad, uh, key actors, the motivation, the means, triggering events, looking at trends. So when you took that 
conflict assessment that the U.S. government had put together and applied all over the world, and you applied it back into the United States, it didn't look so good. There were a lot of warning signs. Now, even if you sit high on a conflict watch list, let's say the Fragile States Index or you know any others, it doesn't mean that your country is going to spiral into conflict, but it means there's a problem and you need to look at it. You know, prior even to 2016, we started saying there's some red flags here that are quite concerning and let's take a look at them. And so, you know, even during the Trump administration and then with the Biden administration coming in saying we need to look at prevention and we need to be looking at, you know, Department of Homeland Security, Conflict Prevention Fund, you know, is at 20 million. Well, you got to look at it. It's got to be somewhere up in 100 million. If you really want to target and look at conflict prevention in the United States, looking at violent extremism, there has to be community grants, looking at social cohesion, looking at trust building. I mean, we do this all over the world and we fund it all over the world. We fund democracy programs all over the world. So we need to be working here at home using so much of that knowledge and data that we have done overseas. But it's hard because for so long, when you've tried to talk about it, you know, you'd get this eye roll of, oh, it's not going to happen here. Oh, you're fear mongering. It's just not going to happen here. And in some regards, you know, not saying January 6th was a good thing, but at least it put on display how vulnerable our democracy is. And I I also think just really quickly, COVID did the same thing. You know, as a nation, we had the resources and the tools and the ability. There's no reason why we should have been where we were with COVID pre-vaccine. But if you look at the data, it makes perfect sense. We had one of the highest declines in social cohesion and worsening social cohesion. And we know that countries that have problems with social cohesion and trust in governments and trust in each other did the worst under COVID because they didn't trust their institutions. And something that should have brought countries together actually was even more depolarizing. So we just have so many examples of how our country has become more polarized, loss of social cohesion. I could go on and on and on, but I think- sure, sure. Yeah. And when I actually reflect on what's happened, and I too have worked in 12 countries around the world, that's how Liz and I actually met in Bosnia. I have to say that when I look back on the literature, as we say in the academy, Alex, I know you fully appreciate that. I can definitely look back on Robert Putnam, uh, who actually predicted this. It seems that in 2000, he had done this review of a lot of data and had come to the conclusion that that America was really no longer bullying with others, but bullying alone. That was a journal article that he wrote and became a significant book that was just updated. And I would also say that it, four years later, Thomas Frank wrote political scientists, what's the matter with Kansas, where people were voting against their self-interest and voting in really crazy ways that actually 
hurt them. And of course, we see this come full forward into 2016 and what happens in that election. But we had a pattern of that over many, many, many years. So Alex, obviously your experience in Cambodia was very formative in your thinking. And you have actually written an article about why America needs a truth uh, commission on white supremacy. And I'm sure your thinking in the book also helped inform this idea. Can you talk about why this is needed now? I would just say, as an American looking back in history, we've never had a truth commission ever. And we never had one after Reconstruction. I look forward to your comments. Yeah, thanks. That, that's a that's a great question, and sort of links in a little bit to the uh, you know to our, our discussion that we've had. Um, I just wanted to sort of add in that in terms of the study of genocide, uh, what's now called atrocity crimes, which include war crimes, crimes against humanity, ethnic cleansing, and genocide. That cluster, uh, there are a number of frameworks that have been developed to do risk assessment. And Liz was saying, likewise, uh, they're always, uh, as you said as well, they're always directed outward. Uh, and I took those frameworks and actually in the classroom, as I was teaching a class on mass atrocity prevention, uh, we, as uh, during the Trump administration, we took that lens and we refocused it on the U.S. Uh, and to sort of pare it down and included things like upheaval, which you often have, a history of past atrocities scapegoating, uh, an erosion of buffers, uh, and then different catalysts and triggers. Uh, you know, polarization is obviously one of those, uh, but so are, uh, you know, a contested election. Talk about a coup. And I still refer to this framework. And, you know, if we were in the middle of 2019, 2018, around the midterms, you think of it like a kettle on a stove. Uh, you know, the U.S. was at a low simmer boiling up and it was at a rapid high boil by the time we got up to the capital insurrection. I actually wrote a piece for Project Syndicate before the election, the fact that all these risk assessment factors were, uh, you know, signaling we were in real danger. But, you know, maybe this is sort of moving ahead to the question um, in terms of uh, transitional justice. But, you know, we're still at a rapid simmer, uh, you know, because a number of these different factors that you have for risk assessment are still signaling that we need to be alarmed. Um, so the question is you're posing is, you know, sort of what do we do? All of you have worked uh, on this directly, uh, both in the U.S. And, and abroad. You know, so what do you do? You work on de-radicalization. Uh, you do work on grassroots uh, dialogue. Uh, you know, there are a cluster of things you can do, but uh, one of them uh, is to undertake what uh, many of these other societies uh, that we've studied have undertaken, uh, transitional justice. Uh, and for those who may not be familiar with that term, uh, you can think of it as you know, a process of repair, of redress for things that have happened uh, in the past. As part of that, often there's a truth-telling function. And so the tribunal in Cambodia that I mentioned uh, was a transitional justice mechanism that was supposed to yield and uh, in addition to holding people accountable was to sort of bring forth uh, the truth that the legal process can do by testing evidence and establishing facts about what had happened. Uh, remarkably, you know, if you think about the history of the U.S., there's never been a significant 
transitional justice mechanism, despite the fact that the U.S. has committed atrocity crimes dating back to the origins of uh, North American settler colonialism against indigenous peoples, against its uh, Black community. Uh, The list is long. So there have been some efforts more on a local level to undertake transitional justice, but there's never been anything uh, sort of of the magnitude of the Truth Commission in Canada that recently address the First Nations boarding schools where First Nations people uh, died in large numbers and were stripped of their culture. And the same thing actually happened here. So people began to talk about this after George Floyd a little bit more. And again, there are some local level initiatives that have taken place like in Greensboro. uh, And there are sort of little movements that are now percolating. But again, nothing on a large scale. After George Floyd, people began to say, you know, people are now are talking about reparations, which was always in the back burner. That hasn't happened. But after George Floyd, it started to pick up some momentum and people focused in on uh, systemic uh, racism, structural racism. But to me, the problem is much longer and in a sense, much wider. That's one piece of what needs to be reckoned with. And really it's a history that you could take back to, you know, symbolically to Columbus and the expansion of global capitalism, settler colonialism throughout the world, uh, enslavement, uh, so on and so forth into the present. Of course, now this is very controversial, as we can see with the different uh, culture wars and debates about the past that are taking place. But really, you have to grapple with this history to move forward. And we're saddled with this history. We've repressed it, talked about it sometimes. And it's always pushed away. And one of the results is this ongoing sense of American exceptionalism uh, that causes all sorts of problems. Uh, you know, in the U.S., we're, we're very quick to forget and we need to start doing a lot more remembering and being much more thoughtful about how we proceed. And that's one of the things that needs to be done uh, in terms of preventing atrocity crimes in the U.S. from happening again. Yes, it's, I, I completely agree. So Liz, on that note, there has been this emerging debate and it's very polarized and it's been uh, centered around critical race theory, which is really a faux debate. The allegations are that children are being taught critical race theory in K through 12, but that's just not true. It's actually taught in law schools. But How did this emerge and what's really going on here? I know that you've had personal experience with school boards and now school boards have become these centers of really polarized debates and even some of them have come to violence. Sure. Well, I think that one of the things that we have to think about when we look at conflict dynamics in a country is look at all of that. You know, we wouldn't go into a country and just kind of zone in on one piece of it. And the social justice issues are important. They're incredibly destabilizing as we've seen. I mean, you can, you know, go on and on and on for the need for work on social justice issues, but they're one part of the conflict dynamic in the United States. And There are, you know, important grievances that we need to look at, again, real and perceived of those living in other parts of the country and how those are manifesting. 
So, you know, CRT is a backlash to exactly what Professor Hinton is talking about, you know, the discussions around social justice. So that is actually something we have to uh, be very mindful of because, you know, with every action, there's a reaction. And um, as you said, even with the school boards, so much of what's happening there is going down to the local level and being mainstreamed at the local level. And that is so critical, but we have to ask ourselves, you know, why keep asking the questions? Why, why, why? The University of Chicago came out with incredible data. They've looked at now over, you know, 700 people that have been arrested at the insurrection at the Capitol on January 6th. And what they found is the vast majority of people arrested there. And this was a shock to me. I would not have said this. But this is what the data tells us. People from exurbs, so not the suburbs, you know, so I, I live in Northern Virginia, so not Arlington or Fairfax, but you have to go, you know, one step out. Um, and those are, those are the suburbs right around Washington, D.C. and Northern Virginia, but you go out one further to like Loudoun County, for example. Um, so those exurbs, exurbs that where President Biden won the majority in that county, but they have seen the biggest demographic shifts. So what are you looking at? If, if those are the counties that sent the most people to the insurrection, and I'm not saying Loudoun County per se, I'm saying, you know, counties like that, that's the data telling us, well, then we need to go and look there, right? Of what does this changing demographic mean? What are those perceptions? How are, you know, what are grievances of, of people that are living there? Coupled with the grievances of people in, let's say, Kentucky or Ohio, you know, you go to some of these communities and they've been just wiped out. They've been wiped out through the factories have closed. You've had oxycodone and, you know, just wipe through there to these communities. And it's important. We have to look at what is also driving the conflict on the other side and what are those grievances and what actions that get put forward, what kind of backlash are they going to have? And it's hard to do working on conflict in the United States. I can't even tell you how humbling it has been for me when I've looked and thought about some of the things that I've done and said overseas, you know, Tanya, you mentioned it. We worked in Bosnia together you know, part of the key to the Dayton peace accords was returns. People just had to go back to where they were living in Srebrenica. We'd be like, you know, go back. You have to go back, <laughs> right? Bosniaks go back. We're telling people they had to go back and live next door to people who, you know, might have been involved in murdering their families. If we're saying this to people overseas, we have to be able to talk to people in our own backyard and understand what is you know, driving the conflict from all sides? And then how are you looking to address those grievances? And remember that a lot of this came out of the financial collapse. Um, yes. you know, nobody, nobody went to jail because of it. Right. Um, the Sacklers too, nobody went to jail because of oxycodone. I mean, think about what that does in terms of justice and fairness. So I think that those are really important pieces. And I, you know, the fact that so much mm -hmm. of this happened after our financial crash is really a key part of this. I totally agree with that. And I would say that across the board in America, it's been one institution after another failing people. And one of my 
things about 2008 is when you had that mortgage crash, people lost their homes. When you lose your home, you lose your community, you lose your job, you lose your identity. Mm -hmm. It's devastating to people. And that has never really been acknowledged. We just go on, you know, it happened and we go on. I agree with you. And in that vein, Professor Hinton, your book, you trace the history of white nationalism in America. And, you know, this is part of our history that many people don't want to acknowledge, and it's real, and many people have the legacy of that from generation to generation, of particularly Black families who their wealth was so diminished, uh, so they have intergenerational poverty. But also, you know, America likes to proclaim itself as this great exception, But as probably a lot of people know in this conversation, there were Nazi Americans in the 30s in the run-up to World War II that gathered in Madison Square Garden in New York City to, you know, proclaim allegiance to Adolf Hitler. So in tracking that history, how do you bring that forward, Professor Hinton, into this moment? How do you put that together weave that into this contemporary situation? Yeah, thanks. Another another uh, important and great question uh, that, of course, would take a very long time to answer. Of course. Full, I, uh, yes, of course. <laughs> but I can give a, a little a little bit of the story that I tell in much more detail uh, and it can happen here. Um, you know, and before I do, I just want to note, uh, you bring up 2008, uh, and of course, that's right also at the moment we begin to get the social media revolution, which is another factor ah. in this with information. So there are you know, a number of things can begin to converge then. Um, but, you know, so with the capital insurrection, you know, and actually with the Chicago study, by the time I, you know, had finished writing the book and doing the research, I wasn't... Uh, you know, I was surprised in one sense that it took place, but in another, you know, as I had been thinking about uh, in that project syndicate uh, op-ed that I talked about, I was pretty certain something was going to happen. Uh, and in a sense, you know, it could have been a lot worse. You know, for example, uh, if uh, then President Trump uh, had not lost Twitter, right, the ability to communicate with tens of millions of people, you know, we could have had many different outcomes. Uh, so, Bad as it was, I think it could have been much, much worse. But to sort of set that up, you know, so, so while doing the research for the book, uh, it became very clear. Now I had, you know, teaching and studying and researching uh, genocide and mass violence. I was very aware of U.S. history, you know, and candidate then President Trump uh, was a very strong personality, a charismatic personality. But many people framed him as exceptional just as they framed Charlottesville as exceptional and as the Capitol insurrections framed as uh, exceptional. But in fact, it's very much continuous with this long uh, U.S. history that has been informed directly uh, by a number of factors you uh, both have mentioned so far. You know, I I think it's important to note that much as we focus on sort of race uh, as a predominant focus right now, I was glad that you mentioned class as an issue because the issue of class intersectionality uh, often gets obscured in terms of these histories. So I'm not gonna totally turn into that now, but you know, if you look at our recent history as symptomatic, 
and you begin to think about the origins of the U.S. and settler colonialism, right? People are talking about 1619, but even going before 1619, when you had indigenous populations, uh, and then moving forward, again, you see you have this combination of, you know, the quest for land and for resources that's going on. You have an ideology that changes through time. But in the end, especially as it's highly racialized, uh, it becomes an ideology of white supremacy that at the same time constantly has a narrative of threat and grievance. So, for example, uh, during the period of enslavement, uh, the worry that uh, the enslaved would rise up, revolt, uh, and victimize and kill uh, innocent settler colonials, or uh, later on, you know, landowner, landowning whites uh, in the U.S. And this uh, is bound up with a lot of racist stereotypes that are used to help legitimate this ideology. But that ideology continues to have, through again, its trans- transformation and change, uh, continues into the present and. You know, so we had a couple of, you know, big moments. We had the Civil War. We almost had some transitional justice during uh, Reconstruction. Uh, That was one moment where it certainly was needed to a much greater extent. But again, this ideology continued. And we, at that point, get the KKK rising up because whereas before you'd had a very predominant notion of uh, white supremacy, it starts to erode. And by the time you get into the 50s, uh, into the 60s with civil rights, uh, you get this sort of flip in white power ideology where there's still a lot of the same currents of white supremacy in it, but it becomes to accentuate that what was before a subcurrent of victimization and grievance. Uh, And that has become much more predominant and it is expressed uh, through, for example, a term that nobody had really heard about, but has been there a long time, uh, in the U.S., white genocide, which is this fantasy that are held by a number of white power extremists, uh, and I should add many other people sympathetic to greater or lesser degrees with that perspective, which is often now talked about as the great replacement theory as well. Uh, but this notion that whites are under threat, uh, that there's a conspiracy often viewed to be headed by Jews or Israel to destroy the white race. Uh, And one of the ways it's talked about is through demographic replacement. That idea then in these fantasies and their books and it's written about and really it's everywhere. That idea then legitimates race war because the idea is that there are different races that are fighting each other and whites need to fight and destroy the threat to their existence. That idea now probably more talked about in terms of replacement theory is everywhere. And uh, there were lots of connections to people like Stephen Miller uh, in the Trump administration. Uh, This ideology is prevalent uh, throughout different places in the globe. It's uh, in the French election, for example, Uh, it's bubbled up and is very strong. But I just want to underscore one point that when we think of white power extremists, we can't just think of a very small number of people who immediately are inflected into be neo-Nazis, skinheads, members of the KKK. The white power movement is much broader and there are different sort of rings of meshment with it. And I think if we sort of move from Charlottesville to the Capitol insurrection, what became evident was that there's always been a very large number of people who to, again, greater or lesser extents, this ideology of white power 
now expressed through white victimization, uh, great replacement theory. There's a huge number of people, we're talking about tens of millions of people in the US who, in some sense, this resonates for them. And that's an extreme danger. Yes, I, I agree. And I would say just this week, the first insurrectionist was convicted. Guy Wesley Reffitt was actually found guilty of five counts, including disrupting an election and for wearing an illegal gun on his person. And interestingly enough, talking about sort of analogous and parallel to the Civil War, he later threatened his daughter and son if they told authorities. And his son did report him and his son testified against him in court. Not only that, but the second person that was indicted this week was Enrique Tario, former leader of the Proud Boys, who was one of the masterminds of the Charlottesville uh, demonstration, was indicted for seditious conspiracy. Now, that tells you how people were actually energized and uh, actually compelled to go demonstrate and even use violence at the Capitol. And Liz, Professor Hinton mentioned, you know, the rise of social media and how it began to shift in 2008. And we got to social media 2.0. And now they're saying, you know, we have war on TikTok this time around, as opposed to CNN during the Balkan Wars. And this has been used very effectively by people like Vladimir Putin and has used it to create cleavages among and between Americans in the case of the 2016 election and with the collaboration of the former president, Donald Trump himself. What are your thoughts on how this plays and engages with our population and the challenge it presents? Oh, it's huge. And, you know, Vladimir Putin has been a big part with the Russian bots and the troll farms on both sides, stoking divisions on uh, social media. And that's something we have to address because, you know, I'm, I'm a lawyer by background. And again, when I was working in the Balkans, one of the things that I was um, doing was going through the political party platforms to look at hate speech. And I couldn't do it. I'm an American lawyer. I, I had to bring in European lawyers because, you know, our first amendment is so important, free speech. It was so important. The founding fathers put it first. But at the same time, it is really detrimental to our democracy of what's happening on social media and what we're allowing in and what we're allowing to happen in terms of regulations. We have to do a lot more on disinformation, misinformation, cybersecurity. I mean, that is one of our weakest links within the United States and what we allow to happen. Now, I, I will say, I think what the Biden administration has been doing in terms of information, countering uh, disinformation with the war in Ukraine by just telling the truth and saying what is going to happen and putting that intel out there is fascinating to watch the truth countering all this dis and misinformation. And it's been fascinating to watch it happen. And, you know, kudos to the Biden administration for doing that. That's a lot of work that we have to do. 
around dis, misinformation, cybersecurity, regulations. A lot of the work we also have to do is around trauma and a lot of the upstream prevention work. Some of the greatest research that has come out on violent extremists in the United States is no different. You know, we, we like to say that, you know, America's exceptional. We are not exceptional. Our violent extremists looks exactly like violent extremists in other countries as well, in terms of what's driving it. A lot of it we know is also around trauma, mental health issues. And that's got to be a big part of our work in terms of the prevention work as well. So I just kind of wanted to make sure that was important for front and center. Thank you for that. Well, Richard Wilson, an anthropologist and lawyer at the University of Connecticut, has written an excellent book called Insurrection. And he wrote this book because he actually was a lawyer at the International War Crimes Tribunal for former Yugoslavia because of Vojislav Sheshel, who got away with incitement. And so what's interesting to me is when you look back at the wars in the Balkans, and the incitement that was used on radio and television is now hyper manifested and repeated over and over again on the social media platforms. What are your thoughts on that, Professor Hinton? Because, you know, as you worked in Cambodia and you looked at, you know, how many people were murdered, and this definitely was advanced through information and demonization of different ethnic groups. I think that remains a challenge in America and of course around the world. We're seeing a war right now being fought around ethnic related issues that are like manufactured by Mr. Putin. That's a great point. You know, sort of thinking through this comparative lens uh, and sort of at the current moment, I just maybe briefly would say two things. One, uh, if we go back to the, you know, the, it can happen here, Sinclair Lewis book, uh, which mine titles modeled after, uh, it can happen here. When you had uh, in the early 1930s, Hitler was ascending, there were neo-Nazis in the U.S. There was a far-right evangelical movement uh, where a lot of racist language was being circulated. Uh, we had silver shirts, uh, the sort of analog of the brown shirts. Uh, and, you know, he saw this possibility. The possibility that exists now, because we have, you know, it's not just polarization, but we have, as you know, all societies do to different extents, structural divisions that aren't going to be going away. Uh, and really the way to sort of move past, if you can, to some extent, different structural divisions is to understand them and have dialogue across them. You know, repeatedly, uh, you know, I would just say, if we look at Russia and what's going on, not in Ukraine, but in Russia itself, uh, in terms of discourse about Ukraine, uh, we have an ideology that's, you know, somewhat reminiscent of, you know, the 1930s with the Ukrainian genocide, where uh, a class was created, the Gulaks, and they were targeted uh, for genocide. Uh, the language now is that there are a bunch of neo-Nazis in Ukraine. Yes. Um, and there are actually some very disturbing parallels between those two sets of discourses in terms of there being a fabricated uh, identity that's constructed that then is extended to mass numbers um, of people. Um, and I won't get into, you know, the sort of there is a, a small strand of white power extremism in Ukraine that bubbled up in 2014 during the revolution. But the, the group that was present actually holds no seats. They don't have any political power at all. And so this is what often happens. You play on 
there's a bit of truth to a statement, but then is amplified and generalized uh, and to inflame uh, stereotypes, to enhance polarization, and to legitimate a project of violence, as we see. But I want to circle back, you know, so a lot of what we're talking about, understandably, uh, is, you know, I don't want to say if the right word is demoralizing, but certainly it can, it can get you down. Studying this can get you down. But if we look at what's taken place in Russia with uh, what different scholars like Habermas, Hannah Arendt, different philosophers have called the public sphere, if you think of it as an arena in which people can come in and express themselves and their views and have exchange with others. And you can ideally have a plurality of ideas that may be dissonant. That's the space where you have the potential for dialogue. But what we see has happened in Russia uh, over the last decade, but especially intensifying right now, is you see the erasure of that public sphere. And Hannah Arendt actually saw the erasure of that public sphere resulting in a form of atomization that was the foundation of totalitarianism. And if we go back to the Cambodian case uh, that you asked about, uh, and I won't go into all the details, but that very much like North Korea provides an illustration of the extremity of totalitarianization where state ideology is trying to produce certain sorts of people. And those people do not have the ability to dialogue, exchange ideas, and also communicate with the wider world. So just looping back to the sort of second point, I think we all need to as problematic as it is, and there are lots of problems, to appreciate the fact that we still have a vibrant, vital public sphere that has lots of problems, but we're able to talk right now on this podcast. There, we're able to have different media sources with different perspectives, and there's lots of danger in it. People can exist within certain bubbles, but we have it and we need to treasure it. If you talk about prevention, one of the, you know, amongst other things, it's vitally important that we protect this public sphere. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's one thing, even if we look back at the history of this country, there are many things that people aren't proud of. I think the public sphere is one thing uh, that we can be proud of, but we really need to work to keep it uh, operative and a central part of U.S. society. Thank you very much, Liz. Any final thoughts here? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you can be very despondent on what is happening in the U.S., but you have to remain hopeful. And there are things we can do. There is work happening all over this country by incredible people trying to you know, build social cohesion, work on media literacy, you know, there's so much work going on and so many committed people. There's, you know, the conflict prevention work around violent extremism. I mean, obviously you're not going to be able to prevent violent extremism, you know, at you know, the extreme points, right? But, you know, they, they need a group of followers and there is work that you can do to, you know, prevent people from joining, you know, white nationalist groups, giving people a purpose and addressing the trauma that they have. I mean, there's, there's so much there to do, but it needs resources and we have to be committed towards it. And we have to understand and admit that there's a problem and not be afraid to work on these issues, even though, you know, there might be a backlash. Um, and it's looking at it from all sides and understanding both things can be true. We have to work on social justice issues. We also have to work on real and perceived grievances with other communities. And that's okay. All can be true. 
And we can work on all of those issues at the same time. And I also will say all sides, you know, whether you're conservative or you're a Democrat, a liberal, have to look at the way our own rhetoric is fueling this. You know, the memes that people on the left put out, you know, the way that people on the left talk about things as well. It's not just one-sided. And that's what I was talking about earlier, that humbling experience, right? And recognizing what have you also done to kind of fan the flames and also be part of the conflict. And it's hard. It's so hard. But it's really thinking about it, you know, from outside of the box that we put everybody in. Thank you very much. Before we go, I want to tell our listeners and AFP supporters that you should go out and buy It Can Happen Here by Professor Alex Hinton, NYU Press. Being in this, engaged in these issues, requires us to continue to learn. And that's what's good about life, that we continue to learn. I want to thank our guest, the distinguished Professor Alex Hinton of Rutgers University and the Executive Director of the Alliance for Peace Building for being guests on the podcast, Peace, We Build It. The Peace, We Build It podcast is made possible through the financial support of the Alliance for Peace Building based in Washington, D.C., Tanya Domi is the host and Senior Fellow for Communications at the Alliance for Peacebuilding, and Kevin Wolf, the audio engineer, provides technical assistance. This podcast can be found on Spotify, Apple, and where all podcasts are found.